0: As we transition into this new year, we are so happy that we had a space where we could have conversations about race and identity and culture and that we could bring you along with us. Thank you so much. And if that space means something to you, show us your love by December 31st. Go to donate.npr.org slash codeswitch. We will be forever grateful. Just a heads up, there's language in this episode that you may find offensive.
1: You're listening to Code Switch. I'm Gene Demby.
0: And I'm Shereen Marisol Miraji. And before we give 2017 the middle finger, I know you want to as much as we do. We're going to spend the next two episodes talking through some of the year's big stories and looking ahead to 2018.
1: On this episode, the hashtag MeToo and the immigrant women who were saying it long before it was trending.
2: They had dozens of rallies and marches where they were holding up signs that said, End Rape on the Night Shift. Yeah, basta.
0: We're also going to talk about 2017's race and representation wins in pop culture.
3: Like Get Out. My boy Chris has been missing for two days. He left on Friday with his girlfriend, uh, Rose Armitage. She's white.
0: And from pop culture wins to real life losses. Our teammate Karen Grigsby-Bates remembers those who died in 2017. She'll share a couple with us, like Dennis J. Banks, who founded the American Indian Movement.
4: The last year of his life was spent speaking to activists at Standing Rock, where he said, make no mistake, America, we are going to be on your back.
1: But first... We can't stop thinking about the white nationalists and white supremacists and Nazis that shook Charlottesville, Virginia back in
0: August. And President Trump's response
4: We condemn in the strongest possible terms this egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence on many sides. On many sides.
0: Only one side killed an innocent person. Hmm. Her name was Heather Heyer, she was 32. She died while protesting the Unite the Right rally when a car plowed into the crowd.
1: We weren't in Charlottesville when all of this went down. But Chenjirai Kumanyika was... And he's still thinking about it, too.
0: Chen is a professor at Rutgers Journalism and Media Studies Department. He co-hosts Uncivil, which is a history podcast that re-examines the stories we were told about the Civil War. And he's also a friend of Code Switch, and he was on our very first episode.
1: So Chen, you're a veteran of Klan rallies for some reason. Um, you've gone as an activist. You've gone to cover them as a journalist. You've gone just as a nosy citizen.
3: That's right. It feels weird to hear you say I'm a veteran of Klan rallies. <laughs> that is strange. But... Yes, I go to Klan rallies often. I wanted to see who is out here actually declaring to the world their hate was part of it. Mm-hmm. And I also know that in other times when hate movements got really large, you know, some of it was because people didn't monitor those things as they were growing. But I want to be honest with you. Too often in the dominant conversation about race in America, people act like the only time racism is at work is if somebody has a hood on. Mm-hmm. Right. And then they're just saying like, nigger, this is where racism is. And then we look away from the other more subtle institutional forms. So when you go to a rally, though, it's like there's a routine. Right. Generally, they get a permit to go to the rally and people dress up in their Klan kind of uniforms, which sometimes are like military clothing that says Ku Klux Klan on it. Sometimes people actually have like these weird hoods, which are like the white pointy hood that you sort of expect, mm-hmm. but or they might be green or purple. Mm-hmm. And usually there's not that many of them in comparison to the protesters. Like if they're going to do something violent, they're not doing it here. Mm-hmm. And that's the general feeling I had at Klan rallies. And so there was one in July 8th like that in Charlottesville. And it was pretty much went according to routine. I went down there. And it was all, I mean, it was huge amounts of protesters, right? Probably 1,000, 1,500 protesters. You almost like, you, you had to kind of find the Klan. You know, you're like, Wait, I, all I see is Black Lives Matter teacher. I don't see any Klan. Where, oh, there's the Klan. You know, it was like, it wasn't like this thing where you felt like, oh, my God. You know what I mean? I don't want to minimize it, right? Because the Klan has a really serious history of racial violence. But I just felt like these Klan rallies are really not, the, they're just not the place where we should be primarily fighting for racial justice or something like that.
0: But something changed for you in August with the Charlottesville Unite the Right white supremacist rally. Can you tell us about that? Like, why was that one different for you?
3: Right. So to me, these rallies followed a certain routine. Charlottesville was totally different. I got to town the night before August 12th. So night of August 11th, I I came to Charlottesville. I drove in with my wife. There was a big gathering of all the people who were part of the resistance it was in St. Paul's Memorial Church. And, you know, it's kind of getting dark out there and we go into the church. It's packed. And it was really kind of inspirational. I mean, they were it was sad that we have to gather like this, but people were just committing to nonviolence. And they were just talking about how we're going to kind of, you know, try to stick to what we stand for. And we don't condone this and we're not going to let this grow. And there's two things that happened to let me know something was off. I looked at someone's phone in front of me and I saw I saw a bunch of torches on the phone. Hmm. I saw that. Right. And I was like, hmm. And then I started hearing all this whispering. So I went to think about going outside to see what was going on. And I went to the church doors to go out and all all these people in there who were sort of supportive staff with the church were blocking the doors and kind of just shaking their heads. And they looked really scared. Right. Like that just was like a person whose color, all the color had drained out of this person's face mm. and they just were like, don't go outside. They had surrounded the church with these tiki torches, you know, and then. I came back to where I was and right then Reverend Osajifoseku said, listen, everyone, it turns out our friends have joined us. Hmm. And he said, so we're going to ask everyone not to leave the church. We're going to let you know when it's safe and we'll tell you what doors to go out of. But right now we're just going to sing so they can hear that we're not scared. There was like this sort of swell where they were like, we're going to just sing and really charge ourselves up. And they were singing and stomping. And I think they were even singing like, we shall overcome. I mean, Mm. it was really trying to call forth that civil rights energy. And that's when I was like. This is totally different than the other Klan rally vibe I had talked about, because Mm -hmm. before, you know, the counter protesters would come first and the Klan would just kind of come in, stay for a little while and leave. These folks had come to a church of all places And they weren't scared of being viewed as threatening or violent. They wanted to be seen as threatening and violent. Then they finally said, "Okay, it's safe to go out. But nobody felt safe. Right. And you just felt like, you know, I mean, you're out there. You're in Virginia. It's dark. The church has just been surrounded by torch wielding Nazis, basically. And you're like, is it safe to walk home? You know, is it safe to walk to my car?
0: So that all happened the night before the rally. Tell us what happened the next morning.
3: So the next day, the rally was supposed to be at noon. So I figured I'll get there at 10. Normally at a Klan rally, that would be enough time. So I walked to Justice Park where the Stonewall Jackson statue was. That was typically what I would have expected. There was a lot of counter protesters there. Black Lives Matter, Surge, and other people like that were there. But then I walked down to where the Robert E. Lee statue is. And it was like... A totally different scene Mm -hmm. you know mind you this thing starts at noon this is 10 a.m there's already like three four hundred maybe five hundred people out there just a huge group and they're all standing right next to each other and they got like these shields and they got helmets and then there was like this one group who i initially thought was the national guard but it turns out they weren't they were in fatigues and they had ar-15s but you know they were they were actually this other group this militia group called the the three percenters And as I walk up, you just hear this chant, right? They're like, nah, nah, nah. And as I get closer, what you basically, what they're saying is like, fuck you, faggot. Mm. And I'm like, what's going on? And then it became clear there were counter protesters there who were like, we're queer, we're gay, we're not going away. All of a sudden, there's like 200 more people file in with like big swastika red flags, right? They were in front of the statue, but nobody was talking about the statue. Nobody was talking about heritage, you know?
1: There were two reports that came out recently that found that the police failed to maintain order to tamp down the violence in Charlottesville when all this was going down. So when you were there that day, were there any police around?
3: You saw police here and there, kind of very sparse police presence. They were just watching this like me, the police I saw who were official police. Right. Mm -hmm. And then there were people who were like in military gear with AR-15 rifles that I didn't know if they were police or not. And it turns out they weren't. Mm -hmm. And then even as this escalated into like actual physical scuffles, you know, there was like times where I was watching people fight for like two, three minutes and nobody's interrupting it. Right. And then eventually Mm -hmm. maybe a police comes in and then breaks it up.
0: Did this change how you felt at all about nonviolent resistance? I mean, I could imagine you feeling incredibly vulnerable and in fear for your life in a moment like this where there's absolutely no protection.
3: This did change how I felt about violence. It just made me realize I hadn't thought through it. What do you mean? You know, seeing people just be hit with bats and right in front of you and that kind of thing and just people raise guns on people and actually, you know, I mean, I I, I didn't see Heather Heyer get killed, but I was a few blocks from where that car ran her over and all those other people. It made me really understand the need for self-defense. I mean, I saw Cornell West and those people just trying to like lock arms and just kind of stand there. But it was like when the violent, when the craziness broke out, they were kind of being defended by the Antifa people. And regardless of what you think about Antifa, it was like they were there with like shields and helmets. They seemed like the most clear about the need for self-defense. So I think that like in 90 percent of the cases, Nonviolence is like just the best tactical decision, but this made me go like, "How can you condemn somebody ethically, even when under are under that kind of attack? When you see what happened to the kid, I think his name is DeAndre Harris, right? How can you how can you condemn somebody for defending themselves against that kind of violence?"
0: Hmm. What else changed for you?
3: I mean, in terms of violence, the other thing I thought about was part of the reason why this rally happened was because the ACLU had had essentially helped these groups sue on in support of their free speech Mm -hmm. and this rally the linkage between hate speech and actual physical violence was crystal clear because all these same groups who are the ones on college campuses talking about free speech a lot of them and their representatives were there in a context where someone got killed and people were beaten it just made me say like free speech is really important to me but in that context it was just clear that like this kind of hate speech is not separate from physical violence.
1: So shortly after all this happened in Charlottesville, President Trump was on TV essentially making the argument that the Robert E. Lee statue, which was the center of all this controversy in Charlottesville to begin with, should that statue be taken down, that could create this slippery slope where you you would hear calls to remove statues of other founding fathers who were slaveholders like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. But a lot of people felt that that slippery slope argument was ridiculous because clearly Thomas Jefferson is different from Robert E. Lee. And I'm curious, Change, like, do you think that argument is ridiculous?
3: I mean, I don't think it's ridiculous to explore what Thomas Jefferson and Robert E. Lee shared. People who draw a real distinction between Robert E. Lee and Thomas Jefferson do it based on this idea that Jefferson was, like, really complicated. Yes, he owned over 600 slaves, but he wrote these words in the Declaration of Independence, But you have to ask, what did those words really mean? What did he mean? Well, we got to look at the evidence. Thomas Jefferson was someone who thought blacks were inferior, right? That's basic. It's not just that he owned slaves, right? He actually recommended to other people, you should invest in Negroes. I'm making like 4% profit on this. These are quotes from his farm book. By the time he becomes president, his perspective was that black people should be shipped to somewhere else like Haiti, so basically, when you look at that evidence, what becomes clear is Jefferson did not picture America as a place where blacks could live freely and where blacks and whites could live together. And so now when you go back to the Declaration of Independence and it becomes clear that wherever freedoms he's talking about are not for black people and that he thinks white people's freedom is in a way contingent on black people either not being here or being as slaves. So there's nothing contradictory about that. Right. And I think that's what we have to wrestle with. Right. Charlottesville has to wrestle with that because it's easy to cover up the Robert E. Lee statue after someone dies. But when the black students at UVA covered up the Jefferson statue, we can't even entertain that because Jefferson is so different.
0: Because he's the man who wrote all men are created equal. Right. (laughs) Is there something about what happened in Charlottesville that made you think about Jefferson more or made you think about Jefferson in a different way?
3: Yeah. I mean, I just felt like, you know the so-called contradiction that Jefferson had reminded me of things I saw in Charlottesville. Like, you know, a lot of people who live in Charlottesville, a lot of poor people and black and brown people there, they complain about the things that people are complaining elsewhere in the country. There's like issues with stop and frisk, affordable housing, issues with education, right? Like they, they paint that kind of picture of Charlottesville. But then there's this other view that Charlottesville is just great. It's like there's an unwillingness to look at how these problems are not just Robert E. Lee, and not just hood-wearing white supremacists, but actually baked into some of our founding documents. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. And this is, in a, this is a city like Charlottesville that is a college town, right? It's a reliably Democratic voting-leaning place, right? Right. And these problems are still true there.
3: But how do you have people after what happened in Charlottesville can denounce Robert A. Lee, can denounce that rally, but are unwilling to think critically about Thomas Jefferson?
0: We ran a podcast episode on Charlottesville in the summer after everything happened, and we got some listener feedback, and some of our audience thought we didn't do enough to talk about the extent to which anti-Semitism was really driving this Unite the Right rally. What did you see when you were on the ground there?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm so glad you raised this issue, because walking around Charlottesville, I saw these huge you know, swastika flags. And there was a lot of anti-black language. Like I was standing right next to a group of these white supremacists and they were just like, nigger, 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 nigger this. But they were also like nigger Jews, you know, and they're very clear that Jews are with who they're really a big part of who they're really worried about. Uh, And I think that that's a that's a complicated conversation for many people on the left because of the issue of Palestine. A lot of the momentum of the resistance who came to Charlottesville and who was there that resistance was built in opposition to anti-black and anti-brown racism, right? So I think that was one reason why this got defined as more so about anti-blackness than anti-Semitism. My position is that we have to take on anti-Semitism. We can't go soft on it, though. Like the people who came to the Unite the Right rally, for them, being anti-black, being anti-Jew, being anti-LGBTQ, for them, all those things are like,
1: Do you think we'll see something similar in the next year in 2018?
3: I think we will. I think that these white supremacist groups were emboldened by the attention they got, by the number of their own people who showed up. And, And what we saw after that was an explosion of other similar marches around the country. So I think we're going to see more of that. And I think what we have to tangle with now is that there's a growing, serious, violent white supremacist movement that you can't ignore. You can't just, you know, pretend it's not there. It's not just old people who are going to die. It's young people who are getting fueled up by this and emboldened by even the rhetoric they see coming out of the White House. And at the same time, what you also have is a need to look at another kind of white supremacy that's institutionalized and not as explicit. After Charlottesville, all of these politicians came out and denounced hate. Not so much the president, but like <laughs> but like other other politicians just denounced hate, right? And then a whole lot of those politicians, they're standing by while Texas continues to implement voter suppression, which disproportionately hurts people of color. So dealing with the explicit violent white supremacy and at the same time, these other issues, that's what I think we have to tackle in the new year.
1: Big, big thanks to our play cousin, Chenjerai Kumunika, for stopping by.
0: I love talking to him, Gene. Me too. See so New Year's resolution for 2018. We need more change on the show.
1: Yes, furious cosines, furious <laughs> cosines. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, the hashtag me too and the women who aren't in the
3: spotlight. Stay with us. Support for this podcast and the following message come from True TV's documentary, The Problem with Apu. Comedian Hari Kundabolu confronts his long standing nemesis, Apu from The Simpsons. Kundabolu explores how this character was created and continues to exist 28 years later, also featuring Whoopi Goldberg, Cal Penn, Udkarsh Ambudkar, Asif Mandvi, and Aparna Nansherla. Watch it on demand or stream it on the True TV app support also comes from google home there are things you need to know in the morning like the weather your calendar or the news a personal assistant can just tell you those things like the one built into every google home just say hey google good morning and the google assistant will tell you the latest forecast traffic on your way to work and even the headlines it's a personalized briefing from an assistant that knows you best it's a little help at home like only google can
1: Jean. Shireen. Code switch.
4: I have your check, but only if you give me your underwear. Or do you want me to take them off of you?
5: He tried to touch me, would tell me I've had sex with other women here. He said he wasn't going to fire them because he was the one in charge.
4: I never slept with any of them. I'd say if I did, but I won't lie. I had to satisfy them in other ways.
0: Those are voice actors reading interview transcripts of three immigrant women from Latin America. It's from the reporting project Reveal. One of those women worked at a packing plant. The other two were farm workers. All three were sexually assaulted on the job.
1: Our next guest helped find those stories. Her name is Bernice Yeung. She's a journalist with Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX.
0: Bernice has been covering the sexual abuse of farm workers and janitors for the past five years. She was a part of a multi-team collaboration that did two huge investigative series called Rape in the Fields and Rape on the Night Shift.
1: And Shireen, you actually spoke to Bernice about the Me Too hashtag and some of the women historically left out of conversations like this.
0: Yeah, she shared her initial reaction to what's now being referred to as The Reckoning. I
2: was floored that so many women were coming forward and so many women were being believed Mm -hmm. and so many people who had been accused were facing consequences. But at the same time, I had a bit of ambivalence because I'd been covering low-wage, undocumented workers, immigrant workers, who had experienced very extreme sexual harassment, and I didn't feel like they were getting heard. Um, And so I went and I talked to some of the janitors and farm workers that we'd interviewed in the past, and, Mm -hmm. you know, they kind of confirmed my thought about it. They, They were also, as they said, very proud of so many of the women who'd come forward, but also just they were asking, well, what about us? And then there was a really interesting effort to draw that connection through a female farm worker organization, and they actually wrote a letter in solidarity with the Hollywood women in advance of a big public event in Los Angeles.
0: Right, I remember that letter. They sent it last month, and it reads... We do not work under bright stage lights or on the big screen. We work in the shadows of society, in isolated fields and packing houses that are out of sight and out of mind for most people in this country. Your job feeds souls, fills hearts, and spreads joy. Our job nourishes the nation with fruits, vegetables, and other crops that we plant, pick, and pack. I was wondering if you can share a couple of the stories of the women who work in the shadows of society, the women that you reported on.
2: Absolutely. You know, there was a farm worker that I'm thinking of named Guadalupe Chavez. And you heard a little bit of her story kind of at the top where she was basically going to get her paycheck for picking pomegranates out in the Central Valley of California. Her supervisor took her on a wild goose chase through all of these orchards until they got to a really isolated Desolate place, and he raped her and then insisted she um, also give him oral sex. He demanded all of this in exchange for receiving the paycheck that she had earned Mm -hmm. doing farm work. And the whole time she was thinking to herself, I need this paycheck. I was afraid he was going to kill me. And if if he killed me, what was going to happen to my sons? Mm -hmm. And I need this paycheck because that's how I'm going to feed my kids. She
0: felt like she didn't have any other option.
2: That's right. And it's a narrative that we've heard repeatedly from other workers. You know, another janitor that we spoke to, Erica Morales, she literally was doing the math in her head when she was dealing with uh, harassing and abusive supervisor who was grabbing and groping at her. And, you know, she didn't want to stay in that job. But she too was a single mother and had to think about her kids. She describes the ways in which she thought about how long it would take to find a new job, how long between the next paycheck if she did that, uh, how long could she float herself while looking for that new job. I mean, it was very kind of practical, considerations for her. And it was really not until she was attacked in a supply closet where the supervisor knew there would be no cameras that she just had to throw it all out the window and just quit.
0: I'm assuming these women are undocumented, these two women that you're talking about. Is that true?
2: There are some women who volunteer their status and some who don't. Guadalupe was. And there were, you know, a number of workers that we spoke to who were undocumented, are undocumented. Mm. There's another janitor named Leticia Zuniga. She was a cleaner at a mall in suburban Minneapolis, and her supervisor knew that she was undocumented and then told her, if you tell anyone, I'm going to call immigration on you. Mm. And she has two American-born sons. Her husband also lives here. And so that was just not something she could fathom, you know, being separated from her family. And so it was a really, really powerful way to keep her silent for a long time.
0: Is anybody doing anything? Has anybody done anything special to address the needs of these women in particular?
2: Yes, definitely. In mid-January, we're going to be updating the project we've been calling Rape on the Night Shift. And we are looking at what has transpired since 2015, when when all this was first published and aired. Um, At least in California, it was so incredible. Uh, There's a new law that passed just last year in 2016 that will give better training to all of the janitors in the state and then also create this registry of janitorial companies so that when women exercise their rights and come forward to report sexual harassment, we know who to hold accountable. Um, And what's amazing about the campaign to bring the law into being was that... The janitors almost had this Me Too moment of their own mm. last year where they were coming out in force. They had dozens of rallies and marches where they were holding up signs that said, end rape on the night shift. They had speakouts where women would tell their stories. They were going and sharing their stories in front of legislators and public forums. It was, a, you know, again, a Me Too moment way before Me Too became as prominent as it is now.
0: Has the Trump administration's tough stance on illegal immigration changed or stalled the momentum of this moment that we're in um, for the women that you've reported on?
2: Yeah, it's such an interesting moment because so many people are coming forward and some of that taboo is being broken. But I think for a lot of these women who whose immigration status is really tenuous, there's a deep tension there for them. So we know that sexual assault reports and domestic violence reports are down Within the Latino community, lawyers that I've talked to who represent workers who are immigrants are saying that they cannot, these days, in good conscience, tell their clients to go to the police if if their client has been sexually assaulted at work. You know, so in this moment where Me Too is happening and the taboos are being broken and there's a space for women to talk about sexual violence that they have experienced... The immigrant women that we've spoken to, they're still silenced. And these two things are really at odds for them.
1: That was Bernice Young. Her forthcoming book is called In a Day's Work, The Fight to End Sexual Violence Against America's Most Vulnerable Workers. All right, y'all, let's lighten things up a little bit.
0: Yes, you know what I've loved about doing this podcast for this past year? Tell me. Is that we've dug into a variety of things from serious news to pop culture. Mm -hmm. And this year, there were a lot of good things to talk about on the race and representation front. If you haven't seen Coco, do it.
1: I haven't. I'm sorry.
0: (laughs) I'm judging you. If you haven't seen the Thanksgiving episode of Master of None, do it.
1: Yes, cosigns.
0: Hey, can I talk to you about something?
1: Yeah, sure. What's up? All
0: right, you know Erica? She's cute. Yeah, that's what I'm
2: trying to say. Like, I like her.
5: Wait, are, are you trying to tell me that you're... Lebanese. Wait, you're from Lebanon?
2: No, i just I'm not comfortable with the word, uh,
0: lesbian. you going to tell your mom? Being gay isn't something black people love to talk about. Shout out to Lena Waithe, who co-wrote that episode. She won a comedy writing Emmy for it. She was the first black woman in the history of the Emmys to do that.
1: That's wild, but also wildly deserved. That was such a good episode. So good. To talk more about this year's pop culture wins, we brought back Aisha Harris. She was on the last episode.
0: She wanted to turn Santa into a penguin.
1: Y'all might remember that. She's also the host of Represent, a podcast about race, identity, and representation in popular culture. Aisha. Welcome to Code Switch.
5: Hey, I'm so glad to be here.
1: So give me some of your biggest wins for this year.
5: When I look back on this year and I think of all the things that have made me not just think, but also made me like really happy and cheerful. Mm -hmm. I come right back to Hasan Minhaj's Homecoming King, which was his Netflix stand up special. Mm -hmm. You know, he starts off telling the story about this disconnect he had with
1: his parents. I think our parents love us. I think we have great fathers. I just think our fathers didn't download all the great dad software. (laughs) like birthdays aren't their thing I mean I feel like every immigrant father feels like if they brought you to the United States happy birthday you know what I mean like Starbucks, Wi Fi, freeways, happy birthday, no more birthdays, go
5: be president. And we've heard those things before from other comedians and people of color who are first generation immigrants. Mm-hmm. But I think what makes us different is the fact that about more than half of the stand up special actually turns out to be about this white girl who's gonna to go to prom with.
1: Bell rings, pring. I'm walking over my locker, I hear the pitter patter of her footsteps. She's like, hey, hey, wait up, wait up. I was like, oh, hey, what's up? And she's like, listen, you know, um, you've been my best friend, and this year wouldn't be the same without you. So I was wondering, will you go to prom with me? And I was like, yes, my white princess.
5: Towards the end of his story, he says, I didn't know that people could be bigoted even when they were smiling at me. Mm -hmm. And he uses that to sort of pull out all of these things about the way we deal with race today and the fact that even people who on the surface can seem very liberal, very progressive, they still harbor these feelings and they affect us. They affect people of color. Also, it was just funny. Mm -hmm. Everything is just on point. I thought it was really, really great.
1: So speaking of stories about microaggressions, let's talk about Get Out.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, let's.
1: For people who haven't seen Get Out, how would you explain this movie to them?
5: Yeah, without spoiling it, I would say it's like a composite of the Stepford Wives meets like Night of the Living Dead.
3: How can I help you? My boy Chris has been missing for two days. He left on Friday with his girlfriend, uh, Rose Armitage. She's white
5: it's a commentary on race in America as it currently is experienced. It's about white liberals thinking that they are more woke than they really are, or pretending to be more woke than they really are. Mm -hmm. And I think that it can't be overstated how this movie came sort of at the perfect time, Um, less than a month after Trump's inauguration. we We were already having these conversations about all the white women who voted for Trump, mm-hmm. the fact that so many liberals seem to think that Trump didn't have a chance or as many of us who were not you know, white liberals were like, hmm, this wasn't that surprising. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think it's just one of the most brilliant things that have come out in the last few years, uh, whether in the social thriller genre or just in, in Hollywood in general.
1: We would be remiss if we did not talk about Tiffany Haddish. Yes.
3: Ladies and gentlemen, Tiffany Haddish.
4: to be here. You may know me from a movie called Girl's Trip. It came out this past
1: summer. Tiffany Haddish wasn't especially well known before this year. And then, by the middle of the summer, it seemed like she was everywhere.
4: Yeah,
5: I mean, Girl's Trip really put her on the map. I don't think I read a single review of that movie that didn't say that she was, like, the breakout star. Mm -hmm. This is a movie that's full of huge stars, whether you have Queen Latifah, Jada Pinkett Smith. So the fact that she stood out was a huge deal. And then this fall, she became the first black female comedian to host SNL. And granted, that episode was not very good. (laughs) But most people would agree that she was able to take some subpar material and really just put her own spin on it.
1: One of the things that comes up a lot about her which I think is really, really dope is the fact that she doesn't co-twitch. Like, she's always who she is, right?
5: Right, right.
4: All my friends are telling me, Tiffany, you a star now. You big time. You balling out of control. And I'm looking at my bank account like, "Uh uh-uh.
1: It speaks to, like, the moment we're in right now where there is so much more latitude for especially black women to be sort of unapologetic about who they are.
5: Yeah. She... Gives her all, and it's just like, I'm doing the damn thing, and I'm so glad to see her winning this year.
1: Likewise.
0: Ayesha Harris, culture writer for Slate. I still haven't seen Hassan Minaj's Homecoming King.
1: You should, but to be fair, I still have not seen a Coco.
0: You need to get on that. And speaking of remembering those who passed away, for those of you like GD, who have not seen Coco, you may not know that one of the main themes in that is remembering the dead. And we tagged in our teammate Karen Grigsby-Bates to
4: talk about a couple of people who died in 2017. What's good, KGB? Hey, y'all. So this guy's a flashback from my college days, and I remember him very clearly. Dennis J. Banks, co-founder of the American Indian Movement, or AIM. He was a civil rights leader. Here he is in 1975, calling for a treaty commission to be established by Congress. To examine 371 treaties and to begin an enforcement policy that would permit the many rights, the treaty rights and civil rights and human rights to be honored and to be upheld.
0: Fast forward to today. Native American leaders and activists are calling out President Trump for ignoring tribal sovereignty because the Department of Interior shrank a large monument in Utah by 85 percent. I'm talking about Bears Ears. That protected land considered sacred to Native tribes. But
4: I digress, Karen. This is your thing. Well, tribal sovereignty and the enforcement of treaty rights were a big part of Ames' National Platform. But... Banks was probably best known for the demonstration he organized with his famous and late friend, the Native American activist Russell Means at Wounded Knee. Mm. This was on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota to call for an end to the injustices suffered by many Native American communities. Wounded Knee was a tense face-off involving scores of Oglala Lakota and scores of federal agents for 71 days, and there were multiple injuries on both sides and two Native Deaths. Hmm. Banks was active in the movement until the very end, although he was an entrepreneur for a minute. He had a company that did maple syrup and wild rice. Yeah. Um, but his main thing was still being an advocate for the rights of Native peoples. And the last year of his life, he was spent speaking to activists at Standing Rock wow. in February of this year, where he said, make no mistake, America, we are going to be on your back.
0: Dennis J. Banks fighting till the end. Rest in peace.
1: Since we're ending this episode with goodbyes, we thought the song giving us life this week should be from an artist who passed away in 2017.
4: Yeah, Jean, and there were a lot to choose from. You know, Fats Domino, Chuck Berry.
1: Very, very huge, influential figures in American music.
4: But there was a less talked about guy, and since I know you're both 90s hip-hop hits. That's right.
1: yo. Moonlight shines on the New York skyline. Midtown is lit up. The city is mine. As I drive across Queens Bridge, Queens Bridge, of course, is today I think the largest housing project in the United States.
0: That sounds like Prodigy,
4: although I don't know that song very well.
1: A lot of really important rappers came out of that place, and Mob Deep, the group that Prodigy was part of, was a big part of that.
4: Yep, the rapper from Mob Deep died in June from complications of sickle cell anemia, and that's a blood disease that affects primarily African Americans and some people of Mediterranean. Heritage. Prodigy was 42 when he died, and this is stronger.
3: My relentless drive to thrive and prosper made
4: me
1: strong enough to take the
4: pain. It's sad because despite struggling with sickle cell, Prodigy, whose birth name was Albert Johnson, was optimistic about his future. He also gave props to the past. You know, I know next to nothing about rap. But (laughs) in here, we get a little bit of Nina Simone. I am a huge fan of hers. And he was too, apparently. So he incorporated her into this one.
1: RIP prodigy of the infamous Mob Deep.
0: Karen's got a long list of remembrances on the Code Switch blog. Check it out. And that's part one of our end of the year show. In part two, Jean, you talk with ESPN's Jamel Hill about Colin Kaepernick and her suspension for tweeting about race and sports. You know, it's all good when you, you know, you catch a
4: touchdown passes or, you know, when you're scoring 30 points a game. But the moment you start talking about some issues of substance or start demanding that your audience do something then it becomes a different situation.
1: We'll also talk about 1968 and the 50-year is coming up in 2018. Please follow us on Twitter. We're at NPR Codeswitch. We want to hear from you. Our email is codeswitch at npr.org. Subscribe to the podcast wherever fine podcasts can be found or streamed. And give us a review on iTunes. It's how people find the show. Five stars. Yes, always.
0: Maria Paz Gutierrez, Walter Ray Watson, and I produced this episode. It was edited by Steve Drummond, and we had original music by Ramtin Arablouei.
1: Shout out to the rest of the Coast Witch fam, Karen Grigsby-Bates, who you just heard, Adrian Florido; Leah Danella, Sammy Yenigan, and Kat Chow. Our intern is Nana Boateng. Happy New Year, y'all. I'm Gene Demby.
0: And I'm Shereen Marisol Meraji. Be easy. Peace. And Happy New Year.